comes from Isaiah 61, 1-4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Pastor Tim Keller tells this story about uh, his college years. He was part of a Christian fellowship in college. And he remembers, distinctly remembers, when there was a young man who joined the fellowship. And everyone was shocked by him. Because uh, this man was famous for being promiscuous on campus. And he had the good looks to go with it. He was handsome, he was charismatic. And yet he jumped in and joined this fellowship and he proclaimed, I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ now. And I'm leaving that past behind me and I'm committing to a, a chase and a pure life. And he jumped into activities, he jumped into groups. And everyone was again shocked and they, and they, they thought, well, wow, this, is, this is real change. It's something none of us would have imagined. And and then as he, as he jumped into groups and activities and committees, what they started to see was that in all of these groups, he had to be a leader, even if he wasn't the leader. There was this great power struggle. So he sought control in any gathering, any group that he was a part of. And what became apparent is that his promiscuous past was really about power in relationships. It was really about having power over people, and he used that to pass out power over women. And they realized that things really hadn't changed. That really what they were seeing as he joined the group, as he professed the beliefs, and as he left his life and the past behind him, that he still craved power. And he, he craved power in relationships. That the change they saw was really cosmetic. It was really circumstantial. That he really hadn't changed at a deep level. If you had to ask the question, what is Jesus' priority in my life? How would you answer? I suppose there could be a number of answers to that question. But Jesus makes it clear. God makes it clear in Isaiah 51, and you're going to see Jesus pick it up, that his priority in your life is to change you in a deep way. Not cosmetic change, not just behavioral change, not circumstantial change, but real, deep, heart transformation. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, he says, all things work together for good for those who love God, 
And he doesn't give us the freedom to define that good. Because one verse later, he defines the good that God is working for in your life. And that is being conformed to the image of his son. Being conformed. Being transformed. Being changed into the image of Christ. That is Jesus' priority in your life. My question becomes, where does the power come for that kind of change? Where does that change actually take place? And then what's the result of that change? First, the power for change. Look at verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Now, who is me? Well, when Jesus starts his public ministry in Luke chapter 4, in the town of Nazareth, where he was raised, where he grew up, he begins his public ministry by quoting from Isaiah chapter 61. The first verse and the first line of the second verse. And after he goes into the synagogue, after the scroll of Isaiah, opens it up and quotes this verse out of Isaiah 61, he says in Luke 4, 21, Today, this scripture that we just read in Isaiah 61 has been fulfilled in your hearing. The me in Isaiah 61 is Jesus. He is the anointed one. Now, what does that mean that Jesus is the anointed one? What does it mean and what does that have to do with the power for change? Well, in the Old Testament, we see in 1 Samuel 10, God would anoint the kings of Israel. He anointed Saul as king of Israel. And so there was an anointing that was placed on kings. They were anointed to represent God, to carry out his work. Problem is, they failed often. Saul, as king, failed to represent God perfectly and carry out his work. David, even the one king who was the king after God's own heart, failed. And here we have Jesus in Luke chapter 4 announcing as he begins his public ministry that he is the anointed one. And then several years later, we read this in Acts chapter 4, verses 26 to 27. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Jesus Christ is our anointed king. And it's through him that we are changed. That we are transformed. Now, what's interesting is the New Testament also calls believers, those who believe in Christ, anointed. In fact, we read this in 1 John 2.27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. So your anointing, as a follower of Christ, as one who believes in Christ, your anointing is the anointed one dwelling in you through the person of the Holy Spirit. All 
believers are anointed. There is no special class or special group of anointed Christians. There's not varying degrees. I am no more anointed as your pastor than you are anointed as one who believes in Jesus Christ. All believers are anointed. And the anointing is the anointed one dwelling in you through the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ alone is the one who brings change. But since we are anointed, oftentimes change happens through relationships, through people, through community. Because the anointed one dwells in his people. But people are instruments in the Redeemer's hand. People are instruments in the hand of Jesus. Only Jesus has the power to change you. And this is really important to understand because oftentimes we can functionally believe that a person can change us or that a program can change us or that a certain discipline can change us. And especially if you have in your story that you experience change through a person or a community or through relationships, maybe even through a program, it's very easy to say that program changed me. Or that person changed me. Or that technique or discipline changed me. When in reality, those are all just instruments in the hands of the anointed. It's Jesus, the anointed one, who changes. When you start to believe that a person or a program or a discipline changes you, you actually begin to worship that thing. You worship that person, maybe that pastor, that teacher. You worship that program, whatever it may be. But only Jesus can change us. Once you imagine that you had somebody, somebody come to visit you, who lived in a very, very remote village and tribe where they had no running water. No running water. For them to get water, they had to hike several miles a day just to get water in large containers that they would bring back to the tribe, back to the village. Backbreaking work day after day to get, to get life-giving water. They come to visit you. And they sit at your kitchen table at the first meal, and they watch you fill up a glass of water at the kitchen faucet and put it in front of them. And their jaw drops to the ground. In amazement, they get up, they walk over to the kitchen faucet, they look at it, they touch it. Later that day, you take, you, you take them on an errand with you to Home Depot. And as you're going through Home Depot, they, go, they, they find and they say, whoa, there's that faucet on the shelf. They say, I need one of those faucets. So they buy one. They go back to their village, to their remote tribe, and they get into their hut, and they set that faucet on a flat piece or a flat surface, and they turn the lever on, and there's no water. Why? Because a faucet's just an instrument. The faucet doesn't produce the life-giving water. And so it is with instruments that God uses, whether it's people or relationships or maybe a program, whatever it may be, they're instruments. Only Jesus can change you. He is the anointed one. There's not another anointed one. And if you can change through a 
relationship with a person, the only reason is because Jesus as the anointed one lives and dwells in that person and does his work through that person. But Jesus is the one that changes. And so it leaves us with a question. Who or what are you looking to that doesn't have the power in and of itself to change? Or another way to ask that question would be, how have you turned instruments into gods? Or how have you turned instruments, people, discipline, a program, into a god? And forgotten that those are just instruments. And that any change that can happen at your life, not cosmetic or circumstantial, but at a deep level, any change that can really happen only happens through Jesus. What is Jesus' priority in your life? One word, change. That's his priority in your life, change. We've seen that only he's the anointed one, only he has the power for change. But second, what is the place of change? Where does change happen? We're going to see here in the first three verses of Isaiah 51, there's seven verbs that are used to describe the priority of Jesus' mission. Verse 1, to bring good news, to bind up, to proclaim liberty. Verse 2, to proclaim to comfort. Verse 3, to grant, to give. Now all of these verbs describe the transformation from a broken place to a different place, or a broken condition to a different condition. Now what are the broken places, and what are the broken conditions? And at the end of these phrases, these are going to hit home. Verse 1, bring good news to the poor. Now that word there does not mean financially poor. It certainly can include that, but the word means afflicted. It means those who are under severe affliction or suffering or hardship. Verse 1, to bind up the brokenhearted. Brokenhearted means to break or to smash. This is the person whose heart has been crushed. If you've lived long enough, every one of you has had your heart crushed. Maybe some of you more recently. Maybe even further. Verse 1, to proclaim liberty to the captive. Captive here means to capture in the course of battle. Take a uh, prisoner of war. This is speaking of someone who is enslaved to something or to someone. Enslaved. Verse 2. To comfort all who mourn. Those who mourn. Those who grieve. Those who weep. Culture, school, entire community who is just weeping right now. 
as you see these shootings unfold. Right? This is not the first time it's happened. There's just a grief. There's a mourning. There's a weeping. Verse 3, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That word faint means dim. Think about a candle that is barely burning. Just barely burning. Now I would imagine that one or more of these phrases describe you sometimes. Maybe your heart's been crushed. Maybe you're enslaved to something and you can't get free from it. And it's destroying your own. Maybe you're under severe, severe affliction. Maybe you're just filling your bed with tears at night. It's that kind of season. It's just mourning, it's grief, it's sorrow. What I want you to notice, and this is so important to see, notice Jesus' priorities in these broken places, in these broken conditions. I want you to notice what his priority here is. His priority is to change you not necessarily the circumstances. His priority, and I'm going to show you here, in all these phrases, is to change you. Not necessarily the circumstances. Right? Good news to the poor or afflicted. Doesn't say he's going to take away the affliction. He's going to deliver good news to you right in the midst of the affliction so that your relationship to the affliction changes. So that your perspective in the midst of the affliction changes. That there's good news. Namely that it's temporary. That could mean a long time. But when Jesus returns, it'll be gone. And that it's not in vain. God doesn't waste pain. Or bind up the brokenhearted. Notice he doesn't say, I'm going to reverse the situation that crushed your heart. He says, no, I'm going to pick up the broken pieces of your heart and I'm going to put it back together. Or proclaim liberty to the captives. Notice he doesn't say that he's necessarily going to remove that which enslaves you. Because most of our enslavement is not physical, it's spiritual. What he says is, I am going to Free you, liberate you, change your relationship to that thing or that person that is enslaving you. So that you no longer need the drink or the substance or that person's approval or the money to be happy. Comfort all who mourn. He doesn't say he's going to take away what's, what's caused you to mourn or what is causing you to mourn. He's going to bring deep comfort right in the midst of it. He's going to change you. Not necessarily the circumstance. Circumstantial change doesn't change you. It just pulls the relief back. If, if you think about what causes you to lose your patience and just, and just blow up. Right? If God were to remove that situation, maybe this has happened to you. That situation is removed, and you find yourself a lot more patient and not blow it up. And you can trick yourself into thinking, wow, I'm really growing. I'm really becoming a more patient person. Of course, that's just temporary. Whatever he removes is gone, it'll come back, right? 
Circumstantial change doesn't change it. In fact, circumstances are the instruments or the tools that Jesus uses to change it. You hear that? Circumstances are tools in Jesus' hands that he uses to change you. What that means is that change happens at the place of pain. Change happens at the place of pain. Verse 3 explains this. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That word instead expresses exact equivalence or substitution. What that means is that change happens in the exact place of pain. And that runs so contrary to how we naturally operate. The way we naturally operate is if I can get some distance from that pain, then I will heal. Or if I can get distance from that pain, then I will change and transform. But that's actually called escapism. You know, an ism, when, when ism is added to any word, it becomes a formal religion, way of life, doctrine. Right? That ism just means now we have worshipped something other than Jesus to change. But escapism says, if I can escape from the pain or the situation, then I will heal. Then I will change. Then I will be transformed. And that's just a, a glorified version of, of removing the curtain. That's not how Jesus brings change and transformation. He brings you to that place of pain. Or he meets you right in that place of pain. And it's there that he brings change. It's there that he transforms you. It's there that he speaks his good news, binds up your broken heart, comforts you, liberates you. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 13 about a man who planted a fig tree in his vineyard. And this owner of the vineyard planted the fig tree, and then he, he came back seeking fruit on the fig tree. And he didn't find it. And so he went to his vine dresser. And he said, Listen, for three years I've been coming back to this fig tree seeking fruit, and there's been none on it. It hasn't changed in three years. So he tells the vine dresser, Chop it down. And the vine dresser says, Give it one more week. Give it one more week. I'm going to dig all the soil up around the roots and I'm going to put manure on it. I'm going to put fertilizer on it. And so often we operate like the owner of that thing. An afflicted life, a life that's just covered over with pain, sorrow, hurt, sin, brokenness, you name it. We're just going to. Start over. We're going to start over. We're going to go find fresh soil and plant that life down somewhere else. And that's not how God operates. Now, that doesn't mean that there's a place for God to change your circumstances. 
He can do that. He can do that. Sometimes it does. That's not for us to do in an escape this way to try to find Jesus. God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to bring restoration to that person right there in the place of pain. Jesus removes and excavates the, the soil around the human heart. And it's there that he speaks good news. He comforts. He heals. He liberates. Jesus brings healing right there in that place of pain. And it's
And you rarely see a show that comes in from one of those old homes and pulls out the bulldozer and raises it to the ground and then just builds something new. Because not as many people are watching. Why? Because hardwired into us as image bearers is a heart that understands restoration and that longs for restoration. Well, we love to watch it. We love to watch transformation. And that's what God is doing in you through his anointed one, Jesus. He's changing you. He's restoring you. What's Jesus try over your life? To change you? To look at the power for change, the place where change happens. Well, what's the result of change? Last half of verse 3. That, so that, is the purpose of all of this transformation. So that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That phrase, that he may be glorified, can read that he may display his beauty. God transforms you through his anointed one, Jesus. And he plants you as a strong tree that bears fruit. It displays Christ's beauty to a watching world. William Henderson, he's a, a man who has written a number of commentaries in the New Testament. He told the story of he and his wife when they lived in Boca Raton, Florida, in South Florida. He said they planted some fruit trees in their yard, but one of the trees they planted was a small candela tree. And, and right after planting it, it quickly just was not doing well at all. Wasn't producing any fruit, didn't look good. And so his neighbors, they all said, Hey, William, just tear that thing out of the ground. Plant a new one that has some hope of producing fruit. And now William didn't take their advice of the well meaning neighbors. He, he dug around the tree, he dug down where the roots were, and he fertilized. And he said, after that, year after year, this tree produced large, delicious tangelos. And all the neighbors who had given different advice began joining. Because there were so many of them. The tree was transformed. The neighbors were shocked. They said, how did this happen? What did you do? They knew, very apparent, they knew that William, as the vine dresser, as the caretaker of the tree, had done something that took this tree from being functionally dead and not changing to being alive and producing fruit. They knew that something had happened. When Jesus changes you, when Jesus changes you, you become a trophy of his grace. Some of you have come to Christ recently, and your life has changed dramatically. You're a trophy of his grace. Your life's not perfect, but your life of repentance and change is displaying his beauty. 
for the world around you. Not only that, verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. When Jesus changes you, not only do you display his beauty, but you become an instrument in his hand for the restoration of others. He begins to use you as an instrument of restoration. If you turn to Jesus Christ and you have trusted, whether that's in the last year or whether it's been for 30 years that you've known Christ, you have a powerful and unique story. You realize that in a room of this size, if every person who has experienced the grace of Christ and turn to him with a share of their story, you would hear unique and powerful stories. Do you know your story? Are you aware of how Jesus has changed you and is changing you currently? Can you articulate the good news that he has brought to you in the place of your affairs? Can you identify how he has taken the broken pieces of your heart and pieced it back together? Do you know what he's freed you from? Are you aware of what he is currently freeing you from? Can you give testimony to his deep comfort that he has brought you supernatural comfort in your time of pain? In your time of what is Jesus' priority in your life? It is to change you. And he is doing that in miraculous ways through the person of his Holy Spirit. And he's changing you so that you become an instrument of restoration for others. Let's pray. Father, Oftentimes we resist change because we avoid places of pain. And yet that's the very place that you do your work of transformation. In those places of darkness, the places we don't want to go. Oh Father, I pray for those here, maybe who have very intentionally been avoiding those places of pain or avoiding what has happened in the past and never really dealt with it. Oh, Father, in your kindness and your grace, would you bring to that place and speak your good news and liberate them and bind up their hearts and comfort them as only you can. That they would become instruments of restoration. Father, make us aware by your Spirit how you're changing us. You're doing it. Day by day, make us aware of the work you're doing. We would collaborate with you as you change us from one degree of glory into another. As you conform us into the image of Christ. What a promise you give us, Father, that one day when Jesus returns, we will receive a glorified body just like Jesus. 
a body free from pain, from sin, from darkness. That promise is there, and yet right now you're changing us from one degree of glory to another to conform us to the image of your Son. And Father, thank you for the instruments you use, for the people, the, the, the programs, the, 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 the places, the situations, the, the relationships. And Father, I think we can boldly say today, because of what we hear through your word, we can say thank you, Father, for our circumstances. Because we understand that they are tools in your hands to transform us. To the anointed one Jesus. Oh, Father, fill our voices now as we sing your song. To your goodness, and to your grace in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.